Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. That's right, we're in Hebrews tonight. I was going to make the announcement that we couldn't get on the Internet, so those of you who are live streaming, that's the problem, but they can't hear me anyway. So, A couple of other announcements. One is that we're having a family night on December the 5th. That will be our annual Christmas tree trimming party family night, and we're going to have a – and I understand this group is is really good – uh, high school group of, and they uh, sing in a lot of different churches. They'll be singing Christmas songs, and that's going to be really, really enjoyable. So you don't want to miss that. And if you would like to bring something to eat, I know that y'all don't like that. But in case anybody here decides to go off their diet in the next two or three weeks, you can talk to Ann Wright, and she will be glad to sign you up for something. And then I'm sure that there will be uh, plenty on that that night. Oh, the other thing is next Thursday night there will not be Bible class because it is Thanksgiving. And so we will not have Bible class next week, so people will be free to spend time with their families. And then maybe you can give the deacons a little feedback, but Christmas this year is on Friday. Not this Friday, but that Friday. So that means that New Year's is also going to be on Friday. Happens every year that way. So we probably won't have Bible class on Christmas Eve. I just don't like doing that. That's family time, and that's important. But I'm trying to decide what we ought to do about New Year's Eve. And I'm not really in for having necessarily a New Year's Eve type of function. But... If we don't have Bible class on New Year's Eve, then the next Thursday night I will be in Kiev. So we'll be going from like the middle of December, from the whatever that is, the 18th of December until the end, until the beginning of February with no Thursday night class. So I'm inclined to have Bible class on New Year's Eve. The reason for that is that's another announcement, is that as happened a couple of years ago, except not quite as intensely, we're going to be having uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum with Aerial Ministries come in for the last three weekends of uh, January, and he will be teaching a course we'll be recording here. He'll be teaching a course that will be used as, as part of the uh, distance learning uh, course material for Chafer Seminary. He has taught two electives for... Fifteen years or more for Chafer Seminary, he taught a class on the life of Christ from a Jewish, Jewish perspective or the life of the Messiah, which he did two years ago here. And the other class is called Israelology, the missing link of systematic theology. And once you hear that, you just sort of go, well, isn't that obvious? Well, why didn't anybody think of this before? And that's because there was no orientation to Israel with a distinct future in most of the church age. So it never became a separate or distinct uh, category of, of theology. And yet Arnold identified that and wrote that. That was the title of his uh, Ph.D. dissertation at the uh, 
uh, at New York University. And it is an egg, the book is excellent, but he's going to teach that, and that will be on Friday nights from probably seven to nine, and then and Saturday morning from eight to twelve thirty, something like that, for three weekends in a row. So we won't have Thursday night class during those weeks. Of course, part of the first one I'm in Kiev, and we will have Tuesday night though. We'll have Sunday morning, Tuesday night, and then Arnold on Friday and Saturday morning. I think that'll work well. And we'll maintain our prayer uh, prayer meeting schedule then on uh, um, Tuesday nights. Okay. Any questions? Everybody totally confused now. Okay. Let's. Uh, why don't we start with uh, prayer? We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we live in this nation, a nation with a heritage of Scripture, a heritage of Christianity, a heritage of Bible teaching, and a heritage of freedom where we have the freedom to freely proclaim your word, to teach your word without government interference, without uh, fear of persecution. Yet, Father, we live in a time when many of our freedoms seem to be threatened by various government policies, decisions, as well as the trends in the culture around us. Father, we pray that you would continue to restrain the evil that uh, seeks to destroy these freedoms, that seeks to limit the teaching of the church to further marginalize Christianity in this culture. We pray that we as believers might have a uh, understanding of our role and our position as citizens in this nation to um, to live out, work out, think through our Christianity in terms of how it impacts the issues that we face on a day-to-day basis, both individually and personally, as well as in terms of our role as citizens within a nation. Father, as we study your word this evening, challenge us with what we're studying. Help us to think through what the scripture teaches in a clear way that we might understand the roles, responsibilities that we have as believers in time, but also living in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 11, working our way through the uh, list of those in um, the list of those who have stood as witnesses for faith, the efficacy, the significance of faith down through the ages in the Old Testament, and that faith is defined in verse one as the substance, the hypostasis of things hoped for. So it relates to something that is yet future. Uh, hope is always oriented to something that is future that is not seen. Second Corinthians chapter uh, 5 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is not oriented towards immediate visual, um, visual reality. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith means to trust him. And when we walk by sight, when we are face-to-face with him, we will be walking by sight and not by faith because it will be evident whom we are believing and we will see things as, as they are. But in time, we walk by faith. We also live our lives based on hope. Hope is also based on that which is not seen according to Romans chapter 8. 
And so in both of these passages, faith and hope are future-oriented, and they rely upon that witness of the Scripture that God has given to us, the authority of Scripture that God has spoken to us, and we believe it because he has has said it. So in verse 1, we're given that summation, not a definition, but a summation statement that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, when we look at that phrase, as I pointed out before, the evidence of things not seen, we don't see something. There is something that's invisible to us. The only evidence that it exists is the faith of individual believers. It is their belief that that exists. But it's not this sort of empty, subjective, faith-in-faith, mystical faith-in-faith kind of thing that you often hear uh, people reference today. That's how they they think about faith. But it is a faith that is based on on content, and we get this from the, the way the word is used. It's not only used to refer to the act of believing, but it also implies what is believed in, the the content of faith. So I've pointed that out, that it relates to doctrine, per se, what the Bible teaches. That's what doctrine means. It's what the Bible teaches about what to believe and how to live. So faith then becomes the evidence of this unseen reality because when we believe something is true, we live on the basis of that as reality. We don't live a different way. If you believe that it is going, it is raining outside, then that should change your behavior so that when you leave, you are prepared to handle the deluge. You try to put on a raincoat or an umbrella or stick a bag over your head or something like that to protect yourself. In other words, when you believe something to be true, it changes the way, uh, the way that you make decisions in what you do. So there's a connection between faith and application. That's what James is getting at in the whole chapter of James 2. He starts off in James 2 talking about uh, hearing and doing. The hearer is the person who is doing what you're doing right now, sitting in a church setting, listening to the teaching of the Word of God. Doing is then taking that which is taught and applying it to the thinking and the lifestyle of the individual who has listened. Doing isn't Christian service. It may eventually result in Christian service, but doing is simply uh, responding to the teaching of the Word of God. For example, if the Scripture says that we are to pray without ceasing, then we say, okay, I need to pray continuously, and I need to make that a part of my life. I'm not doing that real well right now, so I need to make a plan and figure out how to pray more consistently. Scripture says I need to confess my sin, so I need to make sure that I keep short accounts. That's what it means to do what the Word of God says to do. So faith, I mean, so hearing produces application or doing. When James gets to the second chapter of James, he shifts the terminology, but he's still talking about the same thing. People don't understand that, and that's why they misunderstand James uh, 2.12 and following. When he begins to talk about faith and works, he's talking about hearing and doing. When you hear and believe it, that results in applying it, which is the same thing as works. You are uh, working out, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, working out your faith 
with fear and trembling, working out your salvation, rather, with fear and trembling. So uh, when the Scripture sets up faith not as something that operates in a vacuum, it's not just an intellectual procedure, it's not divorced from life, it's not just keeping notes in a notebook, it is not just uh, learning certain jargon or terminology and being able to talk a certain way. It is changing, it's, it's moving everything towards a change in how one thinks, and which leads to a change in how one acts, uh, change in behavior. So when you believe something to be true, it changes the way you think and the way you live. That change in life is evidence evidence of what you believe, that it makes a difference. And that's what is emphasized in those first two verses that are summarizing the the point of the chapter. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it, that is, by means of faith, the elders, that is, the the patriarchs, the those who went before, the Old Testament believers, obtained or actually they worked out or demonstrated a good testimony. That's the background. So we've gone through the first uh, 12 verses for last time, and last time we looked at Abraham's life and how God tested his faith through 13 different tests, and in that process he grew to maturity, demonstrating and illustrating the principle of James 1, 2 through 4. And so then we come to a summary or transition paragraph in verses 13 through 16 that's going to make the point that the writer of Hebrews wants his readers to reflect on. And that has something to do with the fact that when we come to understand what our future destiny is, when we believe that God does have a specific destiny and future for us, and that he is preparing us for that destiny, then that should change the way we think and the way we live today. It should change our values, our priorities. It should change, work itself out into every area of our life so that uh, we live our lives today in light of that future reality. If we believe it to be true, and to the degree that it becomes more and more of a reality in our life and a reality in our thinking, then it's going to change the way we, we live today. If you knew that you were going to die next week, that would certainly have an impact on certain decisions that you would make in the next week. But most of us only theoretically act as if we're going to die next week. We understand the principle, but we sort of assume that, now we're going to be around for a lot longer. So we don't live as if each day the Lord could come back or the Lord could take us home, and we don't live in that sense of imminency in order to prepare ourselves for that, that future destiny. The more that future destiny becomes a reality, and you recognize that it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be the next week, the more it should impact the values, priorities, of your life and the decisions that you make uh, make today. That's what is being emphasized in verses 13 through 16. Now, when we look at this verse, it begins, these all died in faith. Now, the these is simply a summary 
of most of the people we've talked about. We've talked about Enoch, and we've, I mean, we've talked about Abel, and we talked about Enoch, and we talked about Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, but there's one of those that didn't die, and that was Enoch. But this is all, he's using the term death in terms of that separation. Enoch is still separated from this physical life, even though he doesn't go through physical death itself. So the writer is able to summarize that as saying these all died, in faith. Now, here we come into a little bit of a problem. It doesn't say that in the, in the original. This is one reason why it's important to consult uh, the Greek, not because people, pastors, are trying to show how, how uh, much education they have, but because you have to understand what the Word of God says. These all died in faith. Now, there's two phrases that we ought to pay attention to in the in the Greek, the first is the phrase katapiston. This is the phrase that we have here, according to faith. It's kata plus the accusative of uh, pistis, which means faith. So it is according to a standard. That's the meaning of kata plus the accusative. The other phrase is the one I have uh, under that is just piste, which is the dative form of the noun pistis which should be translated in faith or by faith. Now, the, the single word piste is used uh, 30, uh, uh, 18 times in the 31 verses of Hebrews chapter 11. 18 times. The phrase kata piston is used one time, and that is in verse 13. That's the only time that phrase is used in this entire chapter. And yet what we have is many, many scholars, many Bible students simply dismiss this change as being insignificant and it's just the author is just using this as a stylistic variation. Now this is one of those little hobby horses I love to point out every now and then and eventually people do catch what I'm talking about is it may be poor writing in your English creative writing class to use the same word over and over and over again in a paragraph, but do not take that principle and apply it to English translation when you're translating the Word of God. If God the Holy Spirit thinks you ought to use the same word 15 times in four sentences, then you should translate it the same way all 15 times in English in order to convey what the Holy Spirit is doing. But that's not what translators do. Translators will say, oh, that's not good English. And so they'll use every synonym in the book, and people then, they can't, they don't notice the flags that the Holy Spirit is setting out there. And if you've got 18 uses of piste, the dative of pistis here, and one that's different, it's not stylistic variation. If the writer, it would seem to me that if the writer wanted to just vary things so he wasn't being uh, monotonous, uh, he would have used a different phrase more than one time. He uses the the piste phrase, the dative of pistis, those uh, eighteen times because he's making a point that it is by means of faith and trust in what God has revealed that all of these heroes. Uh, had a testimony because they believed something to be true and it changed their decision-making process and what they did, and that became evidence in the angelic conflict and evidence in, um, in their spiritual life and evidence in history. But there's something different going on in verse 13. These all died according to faith. So he's making a different point. 
But before we go on to that, I want to make a corollary point to understand the importance of a doctrine, and that is the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. That's a rather lengthy definition up there. But literally, the Greek word, it doesn't mean inspire. We often use the English word inspire to talk about some somebody who, an architect who has just designed a, a, a beautiful building. We say, that must have been really inspired. Or some writer who has just captured a tremendous turn of the phrase, and that was really an inspired statement. Or we talk about poetry as sounding inspired. And that's not what this word means at all. The Greek word is theotnoustos which is a combination of the word theos, for God, and noustos, related to breath or wind, and it refers to God breathing something out. So this is the word that is used in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired of God. It's how most English translations put it. But it's better understood that all scripture is breathed out by God. It emphasizes God as the ultimate source of the scripture. And so we define this as God the Holy Spirit because of first uh, Peter 1, 20 and 21. We know that God the Holy Spirit is the one who moves the writers of scripture. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directs the human writers of Scripture. And there is a parallel here with the virgin birth. Because in the virgin birth, you have a combination of the inerrant divine passing through fallen humanity and remaining untainted by sin. Okay, did you catch that? You have perfect deity passing through the womb of fallen humanity. Mary is a sinner. She was not immaculately conceived. Immaculate conception doesn't refer to Jesus' conception. It is a Roman Catholic heretical doctrine that refers to how Mary was was conceived. Uh, Mary was born with a human father and human mother and received a sin nature from Adam, just like every other human being, with the exception of her firstborn, who, because a human father was not involved, did not receive a sin nature. So the pattern that we see there is that the, the, the perfect divine passes through the instrument of a fallen human being, yet the fallenness of the human being doesn't affect the, the divine. It doesn't corrupt it. So that just as Jesus is born without a sin nature and is without sin, so the writers of Scripture, even though they are sinful, even though they're fallen, even though they had many uh, ideas and thoughts that were not scriptural, that God is able to work through them to superintend, to govern the process so that he can guarantee that what they wrote was without error. Now, that inerrancy is a term that we use to describe that, that it was written without error, applied only to the original manuscripts. It didn't apply to copies. God is not inspiring the copyists, the scribes who are copying the Paul's letters or Peter's letters or the Old Testament letters. I believe God in his providential care is preserving the scripture accurately, but that's a different doctrine from inspiration. Now, the reason I say that is because you will run into, and I have run into more and more over recent years, 
run into people who have bought into this irrational position, and I know there are people with PhDs who hold it, and I've read their books, and they're still irrational, um, that believe that the King James translators were inspired by God so that even though the King James Bible completely misses the point of the Greek, they would say that the King James Bible is inspired. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. And we laugh and giggle and I poke fun at it, but the reality is is that this movement is really growing. Jim Myers has run into people associated with this who will go over on the mission field and say, you know, if you could read this in the King James, it would be better than reading it in the Russian. Only the original writers of Scripture were were inspired, were, were sovereignly intended. God then oversees the transmission process and guarantees that to be free from error. But the Scripture, the inspiration, that terminology uh, only applies to the original, that God moved the writers of Scripture, Holy Spirit moved the writers of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, 20-21. So, it doesn't apply to anyone else. It doesn't apply to translators. It doesn't apply to copyists. It only applies to the original writers of Scripture. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, that's the brilliant thing. It's not like reading... Uh, some of these other religious books. If you read the Bible and then you read other books such as, uh, uh, you know, the, the um, I forget the name of it now, Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddie, Science and Scripture, or you read the Quran or you read the Bhagavad Gita or you read some of these other so-called divinely given books, there's something missing. They're, they're, they're just not the same. They're, there's a stiltedness to their language. There's an artificiality to it. And usually, in many cases, they're only written by one person. You look at the Book of Mormon. Always interesting how when um, uh, Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon that it sounded just like uh, Elizabethan English, which hadn't been spoken in... 200 years. So it just mimicked the, the sound of the King James Bible. So the writers of Scripture, for at least 40 different writers of Scripture, over a period uh, of about 1,500 years, these different writers wrote, and, and you see all their different personalities, you, especially when you read in the original. You just see that these, these guys are not the same. Paul is very different from Peter. He's very logical. The way he piles up his clauses and sentences and just says idea after idea after idea until you want to pull your hair out. Uh, You have John who just states things very simply. It's the easiest Greek in the world to understand. That's why every first-year Greek class ends their, their teaching on grammar by uh, going to First John or the Gospel of John to teach students to read Greek and to be comfortable. They're short sentences, simple vocabulary. You can't understand it, but because it's so profound, it, it's it's John is just it's unbelievable how he how he uses language and how he builds his thoughts, and you really have to think deeply about it in order to understand and interpret what he is saying. 
So you see their different, uh, their, their different um, traits come out. Their different personalities come out. They're di- they write in different styles. They use different vocabulary. All of these things. So God the Holy Spirit isn't r- just dictating to the individual writers of Scripture. He is not telling them what to write. He, he, in a marvelous way, he oversees the product so that it's free from error, but without destroying or wiping out the individual personality uh, of the writers. Now, there's a couple of other words uh, that we use to describe uh, inspiration, and that's verbal and plenary. The word plenary means full, and so that relates to the next part of the definition that his complete and coherent message to mankind is recorded. So that word verbal or plenary inspiration indicates the totality of it so that there's no part of Scripture that is less inspired than any other part of Scripture. I mean, you go and you read the... um, you read the genealogies in the Old Testament, they're just as much part of inspiration and just as accurate and just, if you understand it correctly, they're just as much a part of understanding uh, reality as, as anything else. There's a purpose to those, but, you, but we have to understand that. So his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy, and the word that's been coined to describe that is inerrant, came into vogue in the... Uh, 50s and 60s because of continuous assaults on the infallibility of Scripture. Perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. And then we get into verbal plenary inspiration, the guarantee that the Bible from beginning to end in its original words is the exact record of the mind and will of God as he intended it to be. Verbal plenary inspiration. So that's the idea, that that the Bible in its totality in the original words is the exact record of what God wants you to know. The words make a difference. You just change synonyms, you change ideas. So the word plenary emphasizes the extent of inspiration. It is equal to every part of the Bible. Every part of the Bible is equally and completely from God, and the words bear the authority of divine authorship. But verbal, verbal emphasizes the extent of that inspiration. It extends to each word, the form of the words, uh, whether it's plural or singular, the choices of one synonym over another, and the repetition of words, and that each word is validated and approved by God, uh, God the Holy Spirit. Now, that's important for us, and I've gone through that rapidly because... uh, I want to get on to the text we're looking at. But the point is that God, the Holy Spirit, has one word used over against another word. And when you come along and just dismiss that by saying, well, that's just stylistic variation, you're ignoring the fact that there could be a real important distinction that's being made there. You can't assume um, that this is just stylistic variation because that's what would happen in English. Yet, I have found that that happens more and more today, and I've seen that over the course of my time since seminary, and that it becomes more and more popular. You want to make a tight exegetical argument on something, and some scholar says, oh, that's just stylistic variation. That really doesn't mean what you're trying to say it means. Then why did the Holy Spirit say it that way? 
So we have to understand that. So when we look at this, God wants us to pay attention to something. These all died according to faith. The according to faith there draws our attention to their physical death. That he's not saying, the previous examples talked about how they lived by faith. They lived by faith, trusting in the promise of God that was never fulfilled in their lifetime. They never saw the land under their ownership. They never realized the, the promises that God had given to them, but they died according to faith. Just because they never saw it and they never experienced it didn't mean they stopped believing it. And when they got to be in their senior years, they just gave up and decided to, well, I guess that really wasn't true. I only have a few years left to really enjoy life. I'm going to go out and have a great time. I remember a man in my church in in, uh, Irving a number of years ago was telling me, he said, my dad has been a deacon and an elder in every church he was involved in since he was a kid, straight as an arrow. And he had a crisis of faith in his 70s and started sleeping with every woman he could find. You don't give up just because you've had 30 or 40 years and your kids are grown. You keep living on the basis of faith, trusting in God until you die according to faith, living according to the standards and the principles of faith. And that is the point that the writer is making here. They didn't give up. Now, who wants to give up? The people he's writing to. Remember, these are Jewish background believers, Jewish believers who have trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. They were uh, probably coming out of the uh, priestly tribe, the Levitical tribe, because there's so much emphasis on the on the uh, priesthood and ritual in, in the book of Hebrews. And now they're hitting a lot of personal persecution and rejection and difficult times, and they're wanting to give up their belief in Jesus as a Messiah and go back into Judaism. And so the writer is encouraging them by saying, don't give up. Just because you aren't seeing the return of Jesus now, just because you're still going through persecution, just because you're encountering uh, difficult times and uh, there's uh, various, uh, there's danger and crisis on the horizon, doesn't mean you should give up. Remember, the time of this is in the early part of the of the 60s, around 63 or 64. The Jewish revolt doesn't begin until 66 A.D., but the intense emotions and the intense divisions within Israel and their uh, attitudes and rebelliousness towards Rome are clearly evident, and so there's just all of this turmoil that's going on. You think that people are fractious today. And we for the last 10 years, I know we've heard about how in political discourse we've become less and less civil. Just go back to Jerusalem in 68 A.D. That's where the proverb got started, where there are three Jews, there are five opinions. And they would fight for every one of them. And that's what caused such a collapse is they couldn't really unify against Rome in their rebellion against Rome. And that's how, how one way Rome uh, was able to overpower them. Well, that was in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. 
But there was another revolt that occurred some 65 years later, the Bar Kokhba revolt that occurred in um, one th- about 132 A.D. And in the Bar Kokhba revolt, you had uh, another major uh, revolt against the Romans and huge number of Jews flocked to the banner of Bar Kokhba until Rabbi Akiva announced that he was really the Messiah. And when that happened, all of these Jews that had trusted in Jesus as the Messiah couldn't fight for Bar Kokhba anymore, so they just they left. They deserted the army. So when the Romans defeated them, which they would have done anyway, but when the Romans defeated that Jewish, the Bar Kokhba revolt, and they killed Bar Kokhba, and they executed Rabbi Akiva, and they executed uh, tens of thousands of Jews a- after that, you think the Romans got blamed for that? No. Think the Jews who led them to this foolish revolt got blamed for it? No. Who got blamed for it? The Jewish Christians. And so they became the, became the scapegoat uh, from, uh, of the Jews, and they decided, and then the Jewish Christians had a, had a major decision to make. Are we going to go back to Judaism, or are we going to separate completely from Judaism and our Jewish heritage and become as Gentiles and live as Christians. And that's where you had a, the first major split between Jews uh, and Christians in the, in the early church. And the church, Christianity, took on a completely Gentile character at that particular point. But those Jewish believers at that time had to make the same kind of decision that these Jewish believers were having to make, and that is, are we going to stand for the Messiah, or are we going to just fold and go back into into Judaism. So the writer of Hebrews says these all died according to the faith. They didn't fold. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. They continued to believe in the promise even though they did not receive the promises. That is the next part of the verse. There we go. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. None of them had received the the promises that God had given them. God promised Abraham that he would be a worldwide blessing. He promised him that he would have the land, all of the land would be his from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. And he never saw that. The only piece of land he owned was the cave of Machpelah. Uh, which he bought for the burial of Sarah and where he was buried. So they never received the promise, but having seen them afar off, afar off is relating it temporally. They understood that this was going to be centuries before they would realize it. Well, wait a minute. If they're dead, how will they realize it? Resurrection. So they had a clear doctrine of resurrection. Now, we'll see that when we get to verse 17. That, that Abraham clearly understood the doctrine of resurrection, but it's implied here, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. That Therefore, they understood that physical death wasn't the end, but that they would be brought back to life so that they could then, in the resurrection, experience the fulfillment of those promises. So these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. So they had a confidence that 
the, the fulfillment of those promises was as real as that which they saw any empirical data in front of them. And that's the essence of living by faith, is when the promise of God, the doctrines in the Scripture, are more real to us than our experience, no matter how tired we are, no matter how worn down we are, no matter how how much we're grieving over the loss of something, no matter uh, what the devastation has been in life, when we believe in, in God's promise, and that's more real to us and shapes our thinking and our reactions and our response, when that is more real to us than what we're experiencing, that's when we're beginning to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So they had a confidence that they would receive the promises, even though it may not be for centuries as measured in, in human time, so that they embrace them and confess, which simply means admitted or acknowledged something, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They understood that this life is, in, is a transient life. And as believers, we are here only for a short time before the Lord, uh, the Lord returns. Now this word for strangers is an interesting word, kind of a fun word. Uh, for strangers, is we find several words, and they're used in several different places in Peter. We'll get there in a minute. It refers to strangers or xenoi. Uh, you, you'll hear the English word xenophobe. Those are people who are against illegal immigration. They're just xenophobes. They're afraid of strangers, literally. Zenoi, strangers. And the other word that is used here is uh, parapitamos, parapitamos, and it refers to someone who may be a refugee, maybe a, a traveler, someone who is, uh, doesn't have a permanent place to live, someone who is uh, still looking for permanent residence. And then the other word that is used is a word that is used back in verse uh, eight. Verse eight. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign co- country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and uh, Jacob. Oh, I lost the, uh, maybe it's not translated King James. But it's the word that is used for someone who is a, uh, lives as a stranger in a location. Living as in a foreign country in uh, verse, verse 9. Living as a stranger. And it's par Keo and oikeo comes from the word to live or to dwell. Oikos is a word for a house. Uh, para, as the uh, Greek pre- uh, prefix, as a preposition, indicates living uh, alongside of something. So it indicates living as a stranger, moving along. And it's used in some interesting passages, like First Peter one one. Peter, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, and that's the, our word there, uh, the noun form, 
to those who are strangers or those who are sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that word, the use of that word in that verse helps us to understand this because it's talking about Jews who are scattered. The word that's used there for dispersion is diaspora, and that's the technical word to use of the scattering of the Jews among the Gentiles after the destruction of Jerusalem back in 586 B.C., and it was used all throughout this period to refer to the dispersion of Jews. Even though there was a return to the land, there was only a partial return to the land under uh, under first Zerubbabel and then Ezra and Nehemiah. So this term dispersion is a term referring to Jews, and they're called uh, pilgrims or sojourners because they're not living in the land that God promised them. So, so they're, they may have some sort of permanent dwelling in Greece or Rome or Turkey or someplace like that, but they're, it's not permanent. Their permanent home as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be in the promised land. Then uh, uh, Peter is going to use this and applies this to their spiritual life in 1 Peter 2.11, where he says, he's addressing Jewish believers, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So he's addressing them that as believers, and he's using this in sort of a, a double entendre sort of way as uh, as. Jewish believers in the dispersion, they are sojourners and pilgrims, but as believers living in this world, they are also. So he's using that as with a double sense that this isn't our permanent home. Our permanent dwelling place, our permanent home is in heaven. That is, as we'll see, that's what Paul says, that's where our citizenship is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these passages that I have just uh, gone through emphasize the fact that the believer has a permanent home, a permanent dwelling place that isn't here. This is a temporary life, a temporary environment And because of that, we have an ultimate reality that is in heaven. But this creates a conundrum for believers living on the earth. Because on the one hand, we have a heavenly citizenship so that we are dispatched from heaven, as it were, to fill out the analogy. We're dispatched from heaven, as it were, to a foreign country to represent God and to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel. That is the doctrine of an ambassador. An ambassador who's someone who doesn't live in their home country, lives in a foreign land, and his life is designed to represent the home country and to uh, proclaim whatever messages and policies the home country uh, wishes for him to uh, to represent wish, wishes for him to proclaim. And so our citizenship is in heaven, but we still live here on the earth. We still live and operate within earthly kingdoms, earthly governments, with earthly responsibilities. And down through the church age, there have been um, various ways in which Christians have tried to deal with that, that 
uh, apparent paradox, that, that conundrum. Are we, how do we balance heavenly citizenship with earthly, earthly responsibilities? And that is uh, what's at the core of what we see in uh, this section in Hebrews chapter 11, is they are living on the earth. They're not, they're not separating themselves. And those are the two, the two ways, the two poles or polarities that we see among believers down through history. You see either one group that wants to completely separate from the world and not have anything to do with it and just focus exclusively on what they define as spiritual things. And that's not just, it was manifest in the early church among the monastics, and they would leave and they would go out into the wilderness, and they did all sorts of things to try to uh, have sort of a, uh, show that they were more spiritual, that they were really focused on just spiritual things. Some of this was influenced by the fact that for the two or three hundred years before monasticism started, the uh, early Christians were persecuted. So there was sort of a martyr complex that developed that if you were really spiritual, then you would um, be martyred for your faith. But after uh, Christianity was legalized by Constantine, what do you do to show that you're really spiritual? Ah, we'll go out in the desert and not eat for 40 days and 40 nights. Or we will climb up on a pole and sit on that pole for five or six years like Simon Stylides did. And people would come from all over the empire to see this spiritual man who sat up on a pole. And so after five or six years, he came down and decided, well, he wanted a taller pole, and he did it for longer. And that was the beginning of monasticism. And we often think of that in terms of the early church context, but it also happens in various Protestant groups. And one of those groups was a group that it became known as Plymouth Brethren, uh, we have a strong connection to Plymouth Brethren. Uh, our Bible churches in the 20th century have a have several uh, groups that influence them. One of them was the Plymouth Brethren group because one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren was John Nelson Darby, who was the first to really systematically articulate the rapture and to systematically articulate uh, dispensations. And Darby, though, was a man who was, who was personally uh, very much an ascetic, just his personal habits, I think his personality. When he went to, when he went to Trinity College in Dublin as a student, he, he was a brilliant man. He took a, he took a first in classics at, at, at uh, Trinity, which meant that, that he was the head of his class in that major and the, the requirements were just unbelievable when you read all of the uh, Greek classics and Latin classics that they had to read and be familiar with. And, of course, they would take their exams, Greek exams in Latin, Latin exams in Greek, and, and you just you had to know everything. And if you were qualified, you were in competition for the first place uh, position, then you had to know even more than what the normal a student in the classics field would would know. So he majored in classics. Uh, he was brilliant in that. And then after he left, um, he uh, became a lawyer for a short time. And then he was ordained, and he was a pastor in a small uh, Irish village for a couple of years. And he would go out, and he had a tremendous heart for people. And he would go out and among these extremely impoverished Irish uh, farmers, and he would go from one hovel to the next, and he would 
uh, pray with the people, and he would give them the gospel, and he would teach them the Bible, and he would leave at 6 o'clock in the morning and not come home until 11 o'clock at night, and he hardly ate anything. He was just like a, a scarecrow, like a, a, he was emaciated. And, and, uh, but, but, so he had this sort of ascetic trend. Well, that influenced his views later on of being uh, of the role of Christianity living in the world. And he believed desperately that Christians were just too too involved with the things of the world, so much so that he, if the way he talked, it was like if you were an engineer and you loved engineering, that's that's the world. That has no eternal value. You need to be in love with Scripture and Jesus Christ. Now, that's true. You need to be in love with Scripture and Jesus Christ, but not to the exclusion of science or the arts or anything of that particular nature. Here's a quote from Darby. Uh, His coming to receive the church, that is, Jesus talking about Jesus coming, his coming to receive the church is our present hope. There is no event between me and heaven. Those who have not the hope of the Lord's return cannot apprehend what is the true path of a Christian. They may have life, of course, in one sense, but they have, uh, they have not, typo there, they have not the proper stamp of heavenly life in their daily practice down here. If I am waiting for someone to come and take me up out of it, that is out of the world, what then is the world to me? What comes of its plans and its running after money and all that kind of thing? And according to Darby, uh, statements like this and other brethren, uh, they so emphasize the separation from the world that a Christian should not be really involved in any of these day-to-day things because that was all worldly or earthly, and it led to a, a separatistic asceticism that prohibited any involvement in politics or any involvement in government or the arts or science or social action, or anything like that. Just focus on the Bible, fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, and just think about living your own spiritual life. But that's just asceticism taken to an extreme. There's a lot of good there, in, in, but, but when it's le- left, leaves out the other, then you have other problems. Then to the other extreme... You have your post-mills and some of your amillennialists coming out of the Reformation tradition that are trying to reform the world to the extent that politics and everything else must be uh, completely redeemed so that Jesus can come back because he's not going to come back until the church has completely changed all of the institutions of history. So they're, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, they're just out there polishing the brass on a sinking ship. But the reality, the biblical teaching, is balances the two. We have been given a responsibility as human beings from Genesis 126 that we are to subdue the earth, that we are to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the the beasts of the field. In other words, we have a responsibility to take all that God has given us in terms of creation and to explore it, to exploit it, to utilize it, to its fullest, we have to learn about it. We have to learn about all of the properties of oil. We have to learn about all the properties of various metals and what they can do and how they can benefit us because God has given us all of those natural resources and we need to learn about them and use them to the fullest extent. When we come together as a society, 
There, there need to be various uh, rules and regulations on how man uh, organizes himself and how man conducts himself in, in that social life. And every group of people has certain rules and regulations, values that govern how they behave and how they operate. We call that culture. Now, if you look in the dictionary, you'll see that the first two definitions of culture are one, which is the, word, the definition most of you probably think of, is that the definition of culture is the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded uh, collectively. That's the Oxford English Dictionary. The second meaning is the meaning that, that I'm focusing on, and that is that culture is the customs, ideas, and social behavior of a particular people or group. Let me say that again. The customs, ideas, and social behavior of a particular people or group. It has to do with their all of their ideas, their ideas about origins, where did we come from, were we just an accident, or did God create us, what are our values, what's right or wrong, where do we get our values, how are our families to be led, how are families to be organized, how are smaller groups to be organized, how are cities to be organized, or villages. Uh, do we give, does one person dictate to everybody else, or do we give a voice to everyone. All of those ideas and values make up a culture. You have a culture in your family. Whatever your family is, whether it's two people or five people, you have a culture. That that family manifests certain values, certain ideas, certain behaviors. You have a company that you work for. That Every company has a different culture. Every church has a little bit different culture. And that's what, what gives us a certain level of, of diversity. But when you talk about a na- larger group such as nations, and we talk about those cultures, those cultures reflect a uh, what we also call a worldview, the value system that comes from their view of ultimate reality. And all of that tends to impact then what you believe and how you act. And the Bible calls that cosmic thinking, the cosmos. We're not to be conformed to the world that is the cultural values around us, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that is going to affect everything. We have to recognize what the principle that Jesus has, recognizes in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, that we are not of the world. We are, that's not our source. Our source is God. We have, as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. But as Jesus said in John 17, 18, we have been sent into the world. So we have, uh, we come from, we have a citizenship that's in heaven. We have a different orientation than earth dwellers, as the term we see in Revelation. But we are to have an impact on those around us. Matthew 5, 13, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, salt helps to preserve, uh, to protect from decay. Uh, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, he says in the next verse. Both of these images of salt and light reflect the impact that a believer has on the culture around him by articulating truth from a biblical framework. So the first thing that has to happen is we have to exchange, identify and exchange the cosmic thinking that is in our own souls. If you're not learning 
the characteristic of the cosmic system around you, then how can you identify in your own soul where you're thinking like the, like the cosmos instead of thinking like God? We have to identify all those areas in our own thinking that come from the culture around us and not from, from God. And then we have to learn the truth of what God says and that transforms our thinking. And when it transforms our thinking, it transforms the way we live. And when it changes the way we live, there is evidence of our faith, which is what we're seeing in Hebrews 11. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. See, we are to live according to faith. That's that same preposition, kata, that we have in our passage in Hebrews 11. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Not only is the fight different, but how we fight it is different. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Not just thoughts that relate to so-called spiritual things, but thoughts that relate to everything within God's creation. So we have to maintain that distinction. Yes, we are, we have a citizenship that is in heaven. And that is our priority. But part of that means that everything we do in this life is to be done to the glory of God. And that means that, for example, in our nation, if you are a citizen of the United States, then you're within that group that governs the nation. Our government is of the people, by the people, for the people, as so far anyway. That means that each one of us, by virtue of being, uh, by virtue of our U.S. citizenship, means that we have a responsibility in government that other forms of government don't have. They don't give their citizens, but we do. So we have to execute our responsibilities as citizens uh, on the basis of the Word of God and learning how that addresses everything in life. And so that doesn't mean that as Christians we're out there trying to reform the world or that we're out there trying to um, make it a perfect place or polish the brass on a sinking ship, but that we're to be exercising our influence in our culture because we're coming from the framework of truth. But we're doing it in light of our future destiny. Back to Hebrews chapter 11. We're focusing on the future because the next verse in verse uh, 14 says, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. That is, those who confess that they're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We understand what our future destiny is. And that as part of living today in light of eternity, we need to live today which means everything that you're engaged in today, all the different spheres of life that you're involved in, need to be influenced by Bible doctrine. It doesn't just talk about prayer and Bible reading and your spiritual life, but every area of human endeavor. So we'll come back and pick up with uh, verse 15 next time and then press on into uh, the rest of Abraham's testing. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be challenged by your word, to think uh, about every issue today in light of eternity, to recognize we have to have our thought processes completely overhauled by your word, and that only as we study your word, only as we are 
completely uh, remade, reshaped by the Holy Spirit using your word in our life, can we begin to think about life as you think about our lives and that we can make decisions based on your values, based on the eternal truths of your word so that you can be glorified. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with what we've studied this evening. Let us not soon forget it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.